I'm getting old and blind. I couldn't read my watch. July 9th, Sunday morning, rocked the boat. We're in Leviticus 14. And what are those pictures of? Baptism. Baptism. You know where that is? The Jordan River. The Hebrew rite of baptism is called a mikvah. It was a cleansing. You would go down into the water and you would be washed. Kind of a new beginning. We're going to look at a different kind of washing in Leviticus 14. We want to start here. When I got together with Pastor P. Rowe this morning, doesn't that have a nice ring to it? It's better than Master P, which the other thing I called him, or Papa P. Or even my kids when he walks through the door. Hey, P. Rowe! What's up? Yeah, what's up? He came with a good word. I was preaching on some other things, and he said, you know, brother, i got this word in me. It's cleansed. What a good feeling to be cleansed. Ever been working on a car or something? You get this nastiness all over your hands and you are sweating and it's dripping in your eyes, but everywhere that you touch yourself, you just make yourself more dirty. I know what it's like to do that spiritually. Every little bit of struggle that I have just shows me to be more and more unclean. So every once in a while in my Christian walk, it is a good idea to focus on the fact that I'm cleansed. Y'all in Leviticus 14? Leviticus 14, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moshe, that's the Hebrew way to say Moses, these are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing. When he is brought to the priest, the priest is to go outside the camp and examine him. If the person has been healed of his infectious skin disease, the priest shall order that two live, clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over a fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious disease and pronounce him clean. What an odd thing to be written in the Holy Word of God. If you were on a mountaintop meeting with God who's in the presence of fire and you could hear anything from Him that you wanted to know, wouldn't that be a strange thing to come down the mountain with? Don't you think? Yeah, that's pretty darn peculiar, isn't it? In the Bible, birds, especially doves, represent the Spirit of God and the Spirit of man. Have you heard the dove spoken of as like, or the Holy Spirit as like a dove, or descending like a dove? And there's all kind of analogies that preachers talk about. A dove has nine feathers on each wing that act as ailerons that stabilize him. There's nine gifts of the Spirit and nine fruit of the Spirit. Little dove would be off balance if he didn't have any one of those 18 things. Does that make sense? But in this scenario, what we have are people that are diseased, specifically of leprosy. Leprosy was a horrible thing in the ancient world. Your nose, ears, fingers, anywhere there was cartilage would rot off of your body. And because this was such a horrific thing, people were scared to death of it. And there were very strict regulations about what to do if you had leprosy. And one of the things that had been devised by Jesus' day 
was not only did you have to be outside of the camp and away from the people, but you had to wear little bells on your garment to warn people that you might be coming near. Because if they came into contact with you, you were unclean. Man, how would you like to be a leper? You're isolated, lonely, diseased, body riddled with problems. Well, you know exactly what it was like to be a leper. When you find yourself outside of Christ, you find yourself alone, separated from the love of God, with a spiritual disease that can't be cured. Your nose and ears may not be falling off, but you don't have the eyes that God's called you to have to see the truth. You don't have the ears to hear the faith that God has for you. And we were in that position. But something was done for us. Leviticus 14 says that what you would do is you would take these two birds and some scarlet yarn, some cedar, and a jar, a clay jar with water in it. Have you ever read in the New Testament that God put His all-surpassing power in these jars of clay so that it would be evident all that the power comes from Him and not from us? That clay jar represents a man. And what was in the clay jar? Water. Living water. The water that you wash in. The washing of the Word. And something was done. A bird was killed over so that blood mixed in that water. And then when we have this clay jar that represents a man with blood and water inside of it, we tied scarlet to a live bird. We threw wood, a wood with certain healing properties, cedar, into the water and dipped the bird into that. And then the next line in Leviticus says, then he is to release the live bird in the open fields. What a bizarre, peculiar thing. But what God did was He took another human being, filled him with His Spirit, filled him with His power, and His shed blood that was perfect. And now your lives have been dipped into that jar. You have been tied with a scarlet cord to show it was by His blood that I was redeemed, and now you've been set free into the open fields of life. This was to be a testimony to all of Israel. What it was supposed to be for is so that that lonely leper who was out there outside the camp and away from everybody else could see every time a bird was flying by, there is hope for me. Your lives are supposed to be the same way. When somebody runs into Adam or Lindsay or Brad or Steve, they should be able to look at their lives and go, they have problems and yet God is with them. There is hope for me because they've been cleansed. Not that they're perfect. They still wear the scarlet cord as a reminder that they've been cleansed so that they would never forget it. But one bird lost its life so that the other could carry the testimony. There is hope to be cleansed. These pictures are from the River Jordan in Israel, a trip I took in 1998. It's nothing special about the river. But like those birds in the Bible that represent something that Jesus did, this river is something that had to be crossed entered into and submerged in to be able to get to the promised land. It was the entranceway to God's kingdom. A lot like Jesus. Stones came from the center of this river and were set up as memorial stones all of the world to see what God had done for Israel as they crossed through Jordan. God did this so that we would see it and we would recognize it. There's something that you will bathe in that will cleanse you. Now the water symbolic. But it's Jesus that we bathed in this morning. It's Jesus that we basked in His presence this morning. 
That was not for your entertainment. That was not just so that you would feel better about yourself. That was so that you would carry a testimony with you all the days of your life. I've been cleansed. I'm free. Something died that I might be free. Now, the problem in Israel was that these birds were never seen. Do you know why? In all of the 39 books of the Old Testament, there was never an Israelite cleansed of leprosy. Isn't that interesting? Not one. Now, any of you Bible scholars out there, is something rolling around in your mind that maybe there was somebody in the Old Testament cleansed of leprosy? Anybody know? Starts with an N. It's followed by an A. Naaman! Let's turn and look at that real quick. 2 Kings 5. Isn't it good to be cleansed, saints? In 2 Kings 5, we see the story of a man who was cleansed. But Eric, you just said a few minutes ago that nobody in ancient Israel was ever cleansed of leprosy. In 2 Kings 5, starting in verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elijah sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh, his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters in Israel? Why would the man say that? He's not from Israel. He's from countries north of Israel. You mean to tell me that in God's economy, in the nation that is called to be a prince with God, nobody had been cured of leprosy, but God is going to heal a foreigner of leprosy? And at that, one with a bad attitude. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think that Naaman did not want to go down into the river to get cleansed? Looks like a common old river. Look at this thing. I'm from Louisiana. That looks like the Amit River. I don't know what it looks like here. I hadn't been in your rivers yet. He looked and said, Come on, man. There's got to be a better way. And yet, says, Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Did you notice? His flesh doesn't get restored in a way that just makes him equal to his age. His flesh doesn't get restored in a way that shows a mark of leprosy, but mostly healed. He gets restored better than he was supposed to be at that age. This speaks a message. It's like the birds. There is a place that Christians can go to where we can dip ourselves in the presence and power of God. And not only does your life change, 
It becomes better than it could have ever been. Then the question remains, why on earth did this happen to somebody outside of Israel? Does anybody know? You can nod at me if you think you did. Did you know it's found in the New Testament? The answer to that question was spoken by our king in the fourth chapter of Luke. Jesus actually spoke on the subject. Boy, he does wonders for us to know the Word, doesn't it? Turn to Luke 4. Let's read this. Y'all going to turn with me? You hurt my feelings. I'll cry and run out. You won't know what was going to come next. In Luke 4, starting in verse 16, we have Jesus in a town called Nazareth. It says, He went to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue. By the way, why do you think Jesus is going somewhere on a Sabbath? It's an obvious answer. Because He was a Jew. And why was He going into a synagogue? Because He was a Jew. This was His custom. You know where Paul reasoned and taught? In the synagogues. In James, when it says, you come together in your assemblies, that word is synagogue. Our translators just chose assembly. So if you hear in our church that we talk about Jewish things, have Jewish examples, don't get confused. We understand our Hebraic roots, but we are in love with the King of the Jews, Jesus. The church has divorced itself from its Hebraic roots and so it doesn't understand much of the Scripture. I don't want to fall into that trap. Watch this. He's in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, because he's a Jew. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor come on saints that is a good message what is Jesus' spirit proclaiming? well the very first time Jesus got the opportunity to preach he preached about very basic things I came to set you free to cleanse you to help you from what ails you not a bad solution is it? He doesn't limit it to sight. He doesn't limit it to the imprisoned. He basically says, if you are oppressed by something, I want to set you free. That's the resounding message of the Gospel, is that whatever holds you captive, you can be free. But watch this. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Hmm. I don't know how many of y'all remember, but some years ago, Mary seemed to be showing some signs. And we hadn't been able to figure out those dates, but... Huh. During her betrothal period, it looked like she may have got pregnant. Is this that kid? What are they inferring? They're inferring that he's at the very least not of noble birth. And they're surprised. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. In other words, Jesus, you got problems. We know who your parents are. We know what town you're from. 
Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And when the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, Gentiles. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet. Yet none, not one, of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, a Syrian. Why on earth would God heal a Syrian but leave His people in leprosy? Saints, there's a problem when we grow up in the church. There is a problem when we grow up around Christianity. We fall asleep right next to the Jordan River and see it as something that is just common. I'm very well aware of this with my sons. I think about it every day. I knew very well how leprous I was the day that I was cleansed because I didn't grow up in a church, because I was very well acquainted with just how diseased my flesh was. We need to make sure that in all of our worship, in all of our time with God, we don't forget just how special and how unique it is that the God of the universe visited us today. When somebody asks you, brother, sister, how was the church service? And we reply, well, it was okay. My God, think about what we're saying. The King of the universe that hung the stars in the sky showed up in our presence, but it okay. You've got to be kidding me. We don't know what we're doing because we've slept next to this Jordan so long that it looks like a common river. But boy, the day those shackles first fell off you, the first time you felt in Christ, it was all glory day. You couldn't help it. You went, you wanted to tell people about it. But as time goes by, you know, it's just what we've always done. Dry, mundane. Just one more meeting to go to. The songs that moved you when you were first born again all of a sudden don't stir you in the same way. Why? Because you heard them before. My God, saints, we've got to peel off the hard layer on our hearts. We've got to get baby skin again. We can be new every day. We carry in us the testimony, I was a leper and now I'm set free. And the only thing that prevents us from doing that. The only thing that stands in our way is that we've been set free for a long time. Come on, I don't care how long you've been out of jail. If you were there any length of time, you're happy to be out. <laughs> I hope none of you have had the displeasure of having handcuffs placed on your body. It is not a pleasant feeling. You are very thrilled when they come off. Spiritually, Jesus broke those chains that bound you the things that limited your freedom. Now you're free to do anything in Christ, but it all has to be with the testimony in mind. I was bound and now I'm set free. You are that live bird and another one had to die for you to carry this testimony. How important. How precious. Turn with me to Luke 17. It'll shed some light on one more story. Cleansed. It's good to be cleansed. In Luke 17, starting in verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Yeshua, Jesus, traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. Ten men who had leprosy. 
they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Why did they stand and call from a distance? Why is that? Because they were unclean and they knew it. Some of us stand at a distance from God because we are very well aware that there are unclean things in our lives. And we are fearful that somehow if we enter into His presence, if we lose all sense of ourselves and just dance in His presence like children, that we're going to be found guilty. You need to remember that there's a scarlet cord tied around you for a reason. It's not your performance that has made you holy. It was the death of another who didn't deserve it. They cried out to Him from a distance and He heard them. When He saw them, He said, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. I want you to get this. They had leprosy, but hearing the Word of God and beginning in obedience. They hadn't even got to the priest yet. They were not even there yet. They were on their way. They got cleansed. God is not waiting for you to get it right. I know you've heard preachers say that. He's not waiting for perfection. He's waiting for you to begin in the correct way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to know how you halakha, how you walk with God? You do it by doing what Jesus did. You want to know how to make your children behave? How to have a good, healthy marriage? How to live a life that is fruitful? Jesus is the way. That will always be the answer. And as soon as they set out on the way, they were cleansed. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked Him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then He said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus had intended that these ten lepers would go and show themselves to the priests that there would be the testimony in Israel. Something is going to die. It's going to spill its blood. And the blood and water from that thing that dies can make you clean. There should have been ten birds flying throughout Israel that day, carrying with them a scarlet cord in the message, you can be saved. You can be cleansed. Israel wouldn't receive that message for a lot of reasons. The biggest one is they didn't realize they needed to be cleansed. Why is it that you think America claims to be Christians and acts like the devil? They don't know they need to be cleansed. Why, though, out of these people who were cleansed, did only one come back? Why did only one think that it was worthwhile to speak with Jesus, to come back and thank Him for it? It is so easy when you get let out of jail to forget how you got there and that you were there. It is so easy when you've been cleansed and set free from your prison, whatever it was that bound you, to forget where you were. The graciousness, the thankfulness, all of those things fades away. There's no phrase that I hate worse than I've been a Christian all of my life. It simply cannot be true. But it is an image that people like to portray, isn't it? Wow, basically all my life I've been a Christian. What does that mean? means you were never imprisoned, you were never chained, you were never oppressed. But you listen closely. Everybody who has that testimony 
at some point in their life realized, I'm not as clean as I should have been. And God came through and rescued them. We don't serve the God who saved Israel in the day. We don't serve the God who saved you years ago. We serve the God who saves you daily. And your job is to bear that testimony everywhere you go. Turn with me to Joshua 8. Uh Uh-oh. What's that on the screen? Y'all talk to me, I'll get my feelings hurt. What is that? Yeah, that's an old guy. What's that? A box? What's it made of? Stones. You know what these pointy things are up here? Horns. That's an altar. The horns of an altar. Y'all in Joshua 8? Tell me when you're there. Guys, you were set free with a testimony and I'm excited about it. Every little bird flying through Israel that had a scarlet cord on his leg would speak a resounding message. You can be set free. You can be cleansed. No matter how desperate your situation, how close to death, you can be saved. But that's not the end of the message. You ever been to churches where people stamped out of an assembly line? Brother and sister better than you and... The rest of the chorus on the front row all's got the same clothes on, same bags, same Bibles, talk just like the preacher, act just like the preacher until nobody's looking. I've been to that same church. I found this and it's comforted me all the days of my life. In Joshua 8, starting in verse 30, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal, an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. (laughs) Before we get any further, I thought this was pretty darn curious. Does Mount Ebal ring a bell? Uh Uh-oh, y'all better start reading your Bibles. In Deuteronomy, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim were two mountains. The people stood and separated themselves, actually into a valley. The law was read. The blessings out of the law were read from Gerizim. The curses out of the law for not obeying the law were read from Ebal. So Gerizim then became the mount of the Lord's blessings and Ebal became the mount of cursings. Isn't that interesting? Where did Joshua build this altar to God? It says, Then Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, by the way, same word as Jesus, Then Yeshua built Mount Ebal, the mountain <laughs> built on Mount Ebal, an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. In the midst of a place where cursing occurred, in the midst of a place where all the people were very well aware we deserve a curse, The man Joshua, who represents Jesus, did a beautiful thing. He took stones. Did you know that the Bible, especially Peter, says that you are living stones? And he formed them into an altar right in the midst of the mountain where they were supposed to have a curse fall on them. He took them and formed them into something useful. But why did he say uncut stones? Why is that? What does it say? It said no iron tools had been used on them so that they were not... Defiled. What do you mean defiled? If I take each one of these stones and I take a tool to it to make it uniform, to make it 
exactly like the other. So that Brad is like Craig, and Craig is like Charlotte, and Charlotte is like Cassidy. If I form them all into perfect little shoebox molds, who does it honor? Me, the craftsman who formed them. They're all little representations of me. And they wear the stamp on their head. I am a whatever. Hmm? Yeah, I'm a Stevensite. Parasite. What God wanted was for Joshua, who is like Jesus, to gather from the earth unique stones, each one not having been hammered to look like the others, each one bearing the unique impression of God, together into this kind of formation, an altar that he could use. It takes some work. Craig and Eric have to shuffle next to each other, iron sharpening iron until we fit just right. And then God adds Mackenzie. And she comes in and maybe doesn't fit on the right side, but oh my goodness, look on the left side. Fits like it was made to be there. If we made this out of bricks, what would be between the bricks? Mortar. But what would be the strength of the wall? It would be the bricks, the uniform nature of the bricks. The wall only is strong as its weakest brick, but they're all supposed to be just alike. What is the strength of this kind of altar though? It's the adhesive between the stones. Not the stones themselves. It's what holds them together that makes them strong. They have sharp points. They have dull points. They have round points. They have square points. All uniquely different. But what holds them together? Joshua built them and put adhesive in them. Jesus holds us together. This is a church. Since you've been cleansed, God took you in your cleansing and is taking your unique personality. I love that you're not like me. If you were just like me, I probably wouldn't like you any more than I like myself on some days. I'm thankful that we're different. I'm thankful that we view things differently. This is to be embraced in the church. It glorifies God who made us all different. It glorifies the Creator. We will not be a machine that simply goes out into the harvest with a combine and breaks off the wheat wherever it can. We will not do it. Because Lindy's supposed to be unique in the way she is. Darnell is supposed to be unique. But in your uniqueness, you cannot be the isolated leper outside the camp. God has made you unique and yet called you to fit perfectly into the puzzle of the body. This is a mystery, saints. It's the calling of the ecclesia, the eclectic ones. It's the draft of God into His team. And you've been called here today for that. And it's going on in churches all over the world. Real churches everywhere. God has ordained the people that sit in the seats. It's for a reason. Pull a couple of those stones out of that altar and the thing collapses. We're dependent upon each other in this place. God adds them all at the right time. When you move on from this, There's one problem with this picture, and I just thought I'd cover it before I go to the next topic. Anybody know what the problem with the altar is there? What's on that right side opposite the old man? Steps. Did you know that in the Bible there are no steps to an altar? Exodus 20, verse 25 says, Don't you do that. Don't put steps. Don't put steps where a priest, a man of God, can ascend to my altar and others view His nakedness. Instead, I want an earthen ramp. In other words, what God is saying, your leaders that are among you that have supervised the assembly of this, 
who are using the altar of God, they can't stair-step on top of stones to get where they are. They can't be lifted up above their brothers in a way that causes them to step on other people. I'm better than Brad. I'm the pastor. I'm better than Steve. I'm the pastor. Pastor worship. High and lifted up, far above the stones. God said, that is nakedness and I will not do it. You know what instead He did? He said, you take an earthen ramp the stuff that you came out of and you build a gradual slope so that He can ascend on it. Always reminding you the substance that you are and that you came from. That's the heart of a pastor, a real one. Not a movie star. Not somebody to be worshipped. Not somebody to be idolized. Somebody who's just as unique as you are but has a different place in the altar than you do. As we move on from these stones... You've been cleansed. You've been called in a unique fashion. You've been brought into a special group of people so that you can fit in a way that honors them, honors you, and honors God, serving a greater purpose than you could alone and isolated by yourself. We move to Mark 4. How many of you knew that you were cleansed? Amen. How many of you knew that you were unique? Amen. Good stuff. Now that we've covered all the things that we know as Christians, let's talk about some of the failings of a Christian. That's no fun, is it? Let's quit right here and go home. We'll meet at Piccadilly. There is no Piccadilly in Texas, is there? We'll meet at Luby's. That's your equivalent. In Mark 4, we have a most curious story. What are these pictures up here? Oh, wow, that's blurry. It's bad blurry. You can see this one. What's that? That's a first century boat. This one that is not so clear up here is a boat that was pulled out of the Sea of Galilee. I got a chance to see it on display. Sea of Galilee in some places is five miles wide and 80 miles deep. It's not really a sea, it's a lake. In fact, it has a river on two ends. It's just kind of a big swelling in the river. And during a drought, this boat became visible out in the middle. And when they started dating it and looking at its construction, it came from the first century. Well-crafted. Amazing how smart these guys were. Metal bands in it. Rivets in it. Hammered in by place. And it survived from the first century till now. That's kind of what the boat would look like if it were restored. Jesus was in just such a boat as this. I want you to read this in Mark 4, starting in verse 35. That day, when evening came, He said to His disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Don't you love Jesus? How does the Bible start? The Bible starts with the earth in what? Chaos and darkness, right? Starts in darkness. In fact, the Bible says there was evening and then there was morning the first day. Starts in darkness and moves to light. Why do you think that the Bible does that? It's teaching us. We start in a state of darkness and we move to a state of light. When does Jesus set out on this journey? Wouldn't you go during the daytime? If you got across a lake, wouldn't you do it in the daytime? No, He sets out at night. That's where all of your storms come. They don't come from the times you're on Mount Zion singing and praising God, dancing with the saints. They come from the times you feel alone and overwhelmed in the darkness of the night with waves crashing over your head. That day when evening came, He said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. He said, the other side? What do you mean the other side? Where are they going? <laughs> doesn't matter. How many things has Jesus spoken to you and said, you have to get to the other side? Whatever this is, the difficult boss at work, the depression you struggle with during the week, the difficulty with your spouse or your kids, 
the hard time you have with an arrogant young preacher, whatever it is, you've got to get to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. What do you do when you follow Jesus? You remember the old Baptist song? Those of you that don't know it, praise God that you weren't subjected to some of the stuff I was. But it was, though none go with me, I still will follow. What is the first thing that they do? They leave the crowd behind, taking only Jesus with them into the darkness of the night to cross to the other side. Do you see a picture here? Is this all that different than your life? You've left your friends and family behind. You've left whatever it was behind, taking Jesus with you, and you're going to the other side, whatever it is. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall. Matt, what's a furious squall? <laughs> season, that's a really bad joke. It's when Cassidy's mad. A furious squall. Squall, sorry. <laughs> a furious squall came up, and when the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped, Jesus was in the stern, <laughs> sleeping on a cushion. I always thought this was hilarious. My brother Matthew here can sleep in anything. There is a confidence and a security that comes in being able to sleep. If we're all together at an evening function and somebody passes out just from tiredness, you could be offended. Or you could look and go, this person trusts me enough to be in their very most vulnerable position with me and see it as a sense of honor. Why do you think Jesus is sleeping in the stern of the boat? By the way, not a very big boat. He's sleeping right here. Why? Because he's not worried about anything. You ever been so frightened about something you couldn't stop thinking about it? Couldn't, couldn't get your mind off of it? Couldn't go to sleep? Anxiety's filling you? No, none of you have ever felt that. You never laid in bed at night. But God, what about me? you never done that, have you? Come on, Nick. I've heard you do that voice. No, I'm kidding. Not my brother Nick. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Is there real danger here? Yes, the boat is nearly swamped. I live in Louisiana. I know what it means to be swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Their problem is that Jesus is not throwing a hissy fit just like them. Their problem is that Jesus is all too comfortable in a dangerous situation. But let me ask you something. When they left, wasn't it nighttime? Didn't they leave all of their friends behind? And what are they forgetting at this very moment? Jesus is in the boat with them. There are times that we realize we've been cleansed. We realize we're unique. We've been fit into the body of Christ, but we forget a very essential truth. We left everything behind to go with Jesus, and He is with us. In your darkest hole, He was there with you. In your most difficult hour, He was there with you. And it is not uncommon at all for Him not to be right there going, Oh, Judah, you, you're such a good boy. I love you here. Be strong. Be comforted. It's not uncommon at all for Him to do just the opposite, to fall asleep as if there are no problems. He's sleeping during the hour they thought they were dying. And what does He say to them about it? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still! 
That is a very nice way to say, shut up so I can sleep. Then, in Hebrew, shut up is sheket. <laughs> yeah, isn't that nice? Doesn't that just roll off the tongue? Sheket. Like a Polaroid? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? What is faith, saints? It's trust. And what he's saying is in the midst of your storm, in the darkness of the night, you started well. You said, I'm going to the other side. You left everybody behind and we were all so happy. But then when the waves came and the storm came, even though I was right there with you, you could see me. You knew I was in the boat. You didn't trust that we would make it to the other side. Whose idea was it to go to the other side? Jesus. Why were they in the boat? Jesus was there. Who set them out on the journey? Jesus. So why is it that God's called you to do whatever He's called you to do? To be married, to have kids, advance the kingdom, whatever it is. And Jesus sets you on the journey. Jesus is with you in the boat. And we cry like Jesus is going to let us drown. If He called you, you will make it. You know what He's looking for? For you to lay down next to Him and go, there is no problem that can overcome me. I'm going to relax in my Lord. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They should have looked at the way and go, this is how we handle our problems. We laugh in their face and we sleep while they're angry. Because that's what Jesus did. The next time we are in a problem, we need to remember this. I got a little carried away here with my sermon illustrations and I stole this from a previous one. There are two slides that I'm going to show you. You'd do well to write these down somewhere. You really would. What happens when we face the storms in our life or the events of sickness or despair or whatever it is, is they are obstacles. The obstacle could be that you have to cross to the other side of the storm. The obstacle could be that you've been 38 years as a paralytic on a mat. The obstacle could be that you were born blind. But in God's kingdom, every obstacle is an opportunity. And every obstacle that is an opportunity gives you the chance to overcome. When we begin to see obstacles as opportunity to overcome, then we can find power. We can find victory in our walk. You'll stop having to crawl on your knees and say, Lord, forgive me, I failed. Because you will have the Lord's perspective on it. If He called you to go to the other side, He knew there were obstacles. He's not concerned about them and neither should you be. Your job is to worry about His instruction. His job is to worry about your obstruction. Do you understand the difference? That is a nice way to say, you do what He told you to do and He will take care of the rest. You listen to the instruction, He will handle the obstruction. When you have threats of storms and drowning, you have the opportunity to see God's power revealed. You have the opportunity to see faith and salvation happen in each and every instance. What do you not have if you have no obstacles? You have no opportunities. If Israel had not been hemmed in by three sides, the ocean, and one side, Pharaoh, we would have not seen the ocean split so that they could cross it. If they had not been in a desert where there was no water, we would have not seen a rock split open and water come out. If those people hadn't had leprosy, 
you would have not seen Jesus heal them. Your obstacles are simply opportunities in disguise. You need to frame the argument in a way that gets you victory, in a way that gives you the right perspective. Here's the other one. Turn with me to James. This is Craig's fault that I'm covering this. He made me read James 1 the other night. And it began to stir things deep within me. I want you to know something. This silly little wheel that I call James' wheel of maturity is something that has been a part of my life for a long time. Every time I face obstacles that are trials, that are not easily overcome, I see that my faith, my trust in God is being tested. The testing of that faith over time develops in me a perseverance, a tenacity, a refusal to give in. That perseverance creates in me maturity. If you want to be mature, saints, don't you? Nobody wants to be thought of as a baby craving only milk. Nobody wants to be thought of in diaper Christianity, do they? In fact, we're really proud to say, I was saved in such and such time. I've been a Christian 20 years. I've been a Christian 40 years. Yeah, and if you don't know how to persevere under trial, it's like you've been born again a week. Because that's what the kingdom's about. God gets His glory through what He overcomes in you. That's how He gets His glory. In James 1, starting in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now that you've been cleansed and you carry the testimony, I am Christ in His mind. The scarlet cord is around you identifying you to all people. Now that you carry that and you realize I'm supposed fit into this body, I'm supposed to shine and sparkle, not look just like everybody else, but like God called me to be. Then comes time to face the obstacle. See it as an opportunity and get excited. Wow, a trial. That's joy, man. Because we're going to see God move. Is that your attitude? Be honest. Is that your attitude? If you're honest with me, the truth is sometimes it's your attitude and sometimes it's not. Me too. Me too. I'm waiting for this godly leaven to work through all of this doughboy. <laughs> Funny how that just came to me. Consider your joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Isn't that interesting? Many kinds. You know, when they bound Samson... Remember the people from his town came out and bound him as he met the Philistines? said they bound him with new ropes. Why not old ropes? They might have broken, right? Old ropes. After a while, you get used to seeing the same trial. He goes, man, this is easy. I'll step right on this. God's a big God. I'll tear off those chains. But something new comes up and we act as if God's surprised. Oh my God! Lord, I just bought a house and now I don't know how to pay the mortgage. Like it caught God by surprise crafty fellow that you are, you were able to outwit God. Amazing how highly we think of ourselves sometimes. He's in my boat. I'm following Him. I'm going only where He leads me, but somehow He's surprised by my circumstances. Faith always looks right into your circumstances and says, I will not be overcome. God is able to perform what He's promised. That shows trust. There is no trust if there's nothing that threatens the trust. Say, Judah, I want you to sit right there and eat ice cream all day. Does that require a lot of trust? No, that's exactly what Judah would like to do. Say, Judah, I'd like you to eat vegetables and no meat in the king's court for the next few months. Does that require trust? Yeah, you better know who your daddy is if you accept that kind of advice. But for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it worked pretty well, didn't it? 
Their faith, their trust is legendary. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Saints, there is only one way to get to this step. Maturity only comes in persevering under trial. So why do we want there are trials? We shouldn't. What we want is to mature. First Peter 2, 2 says, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. We're supposed to be growing daily. In fact, if you are not growing in Christ, there's a good chance it's because you are dead. Thank you, Brad. He gave me that in 1993 as I taught one of my very first Bible studies. Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary, that's kiddie school, grade school teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. You know what's funny? Go back and read Hebrews 6. Tell me if you understand what he calls kiddie teachings, elementary school, what's for babies. How funny are great spiritual leaders who write books on how you succeed in every area of life don't teach or preach on what the Bible calls elementary teachings. Laying on of hands, repentance from dead works, those kind of things. Baptisms, plural. (laughs) Oh no, we can't touch that one because we're cookie cutters stamped out of the same mold. This wheel will save your life. You know why? Next time you go, oh my God, this is hard. Jesus, don't you see the situation I'm in? My boss is an ogre. (laughs) You can go, oh wait, wait, I asked for maturity. This just puts me here in this process. But this is what's next, maturity. And after maturity comes completeness. And you belong for it. Because you know it's like climbing rungs on a ladder. God is taking you closer to Him. Then you can count it joy because you see with eyes to see. David Livingstone said that when he got born again, it was as if he was cured of colorblindness for the first time in his life. He could see things that were always there, but in a whole new light. That's the kingdom. We need to learn to look at these things in the correct light. What's that? A thorn. i only got a couple more Scriptures for you. But look for me at Luke 8. That's a thorn from... We use the New Testament word, an acacia tree. Anybody know why we use the New Testament word there? The Old Testament word sounds frighteningly like bathroom talk in Hebrew. The tree in Hebrew is spelled S-H-I-T-T-I-M. Preachers always struggle with that word, you know? So we just call it an acacia tree, which is what you call it in the New Testament. In Luke 8, we hear a curious sentence. I love when Jesus gives a parable and He follows the parable with the explanation. Because in my life, many times, especially reading through the book of Daniel, I read a vision and then I spent time praying about it. And I spent time talking with others about it. And I spent time seeking God about it and I went, "Ah, I think I know what it means only to read the next paragraph and find out that he says, and this is the meaning of the vision. Well, not all the parables come with their own explanation. They don't have the cliff notes. But this one does. And Luke wrote it down for us so that even a dummy like me couldn't miss it. And this was the parable of the four soils and here was the explanation. This is the meaning. Luke eight eleven. 
of the parable. The seed is the Word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Is there any question in the world that the first one hears the Word but does not believe and is not saved? No question in the world, is there? Those on the rock are the ones who receive the Word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Now, if you come from a church in a background that says that's not possible, there's not a problem here. Take out a black highlighter like a Sharpie and just cross it out. Or you could decide to cross out the old teaching that is wrong and take the new teaching that the Word clearly portrays. Not a complicated subject unless there's just an awful lot of pride in your heart. If there is, then it would be hard. But if we just want to cling to what Jesus says, all we have to do is read what He says. Some don't believe and are not saved. Others believe, but only for a while, and then fall away. How do you fall out of a boat you weren't in? Okay, well, that's about all the theological dissertation we have to give on that subject. It's very, very clear. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, how do you go on the way? You are following Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. They are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. They do not mature. In this previous wheel, when the testing came, that was supposed to develop perseverance, that's a refusal to quit, a tenacity, something happened and their trust in God got shipwrecked because they were being choked by all the things they were worried about, the thorns in their life. There's a good answer for this. We need to learn to weed and feed. Those thorns that are in our lives, they don't start big enough to choke us, do they? They start really small. In fact, one day they broke the soil just barely, maybe a quarter of an inch. Really easy to stomp on them then, to pull them up then. These are our thoughts, saints. The Bible commands us to take captive our thoughts, make them obedient to the knowledge of Christ. You know why that's so important? Because of this. James 1.13 says, When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. What is an evil desire? It's a thought that is contrary to the Word of God that begins to roll around in your mind. He is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown gives birth to death. There is a wheel in James that teaches you. Testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance results in maturity. Maturity results in completeness. It's a circular relationship. You can't have one without the other. There is also revealed in James the method to fall away and to die. It starts with a desire that goes unchecked. One that you're not supposed to have that you begin to dwell on. Then it begins to pull at your heart and drag you out of the boat that Jesus is in so that it can drown you. As you begin to be enticed, sin is birthed. When sin is allowed to grow unchecked in your life without bringing it to the cross, without taking it to be cleansed, without all of those things, 
It will give birth to death because it will kill your trust in God. Isn't that a good thing to avoid? What is the easiest thing to avoid, you think? The death at the bottom or the desire at the top? Create in me a clean heart. All of those words, those songs are saying, Lord, reshape me so that my desires don't overcome me. It's not always a wicked thing. It's not. Nobody wakes up one day and You know, today, not tomorrow, not yesterday, but today, I'm going to go become a crack whore. How about that? You think that's ever happened in the history of the world? You know? Today, today I'm going to go be indigent. I'm going to bag on the street and smell like urine. Today I'm going to do that. You want to go with me? Come on. You want some? That doesn't happen, does it? It started with an unhealthy desire that enticed and dragged somebody into something that they really didn't know or didn't want. But something was enticing about it. And before long, it killed them. That sin's deceptiveness. So what do we do? You learn this Word. You soak in it. You know where you came from. You know your unique place in the body so that you can be unshakable, unmovable, unenticeable by wicked things. That's our desire. Now, who in here hasn't been enticed? If we're honest, if we could read each other's minds, there's all kinds of things that have probably enticed us this week. But kill it in that stage. Don't let it grow. And if you feel something getting an unhealthy hold on your life, throw the freedom away. It is not worth it. What's that? That's a tomb, an empty tomb. Come with me to Second Kings. Whenever our worship is as good as it was today, but shorter than normal, it tempts me to preach longer than I should. I forget that we started at 15 till the hour, and now we're over that. But I figure that for me and for Jesus, you can endure my ranting and raving just one more scripture. Who knows who Elijah was? By the way, why don't we call him Elisha? It's spelled like that, isn't it? Because he was a powerful man, and that just sounds girly, doesn't it? There is no better explanation than that. His name's not anything like Elisha or Elisha in Hebrew. I mean, not, not at all. We've Americanized it. But in any case, Elisha was the successor to someone. Elijah. We've got the J and the S going on. That's how you can remember them too. The difference between their names, the J and the S. J comes before S in the alphabet. That's how you can separate these two mighty prophets. Because other than that, they were very similar. You all remember why they were very similar? They had the same anointing. In fact, Elisha was said to have double the anointing, right? Now, my math's not real good, but double the anointing. What would you do then? You would... Multiply it by two, wouldn't you? That's how you double something. How many miracles did Elijah do in his lifetime? Come on, you Bible scholars. It's a perfect number. Seven. That's Y'all are so good. He did seven major miracles in his lifetime. I mean, we're talking about a man of God did a perfect number of miracles. But now we got Elisha. He's going to double them, right? He's got double the anointing. Twice the power. So, what is two times seven? Judah, you are so smart, son. You got that for anybody else. 
Even Mr. Matthew over there. Fourteen. There's a problem though. This problem is found in 2 Kings 13, verse 20. Elijah died and was buried. When he died and was buried, he'd only done 13 miracles in his life. Good job, God. You got close. Good job, God. He did almost twice. You know what we do in our realm when we don't understand something like that? We go back and we disqualify one of Elijah's miracles because it looks like God was right anyway. When we don't understand the Scripture, we try to twist it and contort it to our own views, don't we? Elijah did seven major miracles and Elijah had only 13. Why would God let the man die without fulfilling His promise? Why would God put these disciples in a boat where the sentence of death was in their heart? Why on earth would God let a man sit paralyzed on a mat for 38 years? Why on earth would God let somebody be born blind? What kind of God is He anyway? Have you never heard people say, if God is God, why are there people starving in Africa? Why does He ignore my problem? Why is He sleeping while I'm in the boat? Have you never heard that? But you learn today that every obstacle is what? An opportunity for God's power to be displayed. Elisha died in the faith. He died believing that God was right and every other man a liar. He died trusting in God. Read verse 21. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders that threw the man's body into Elijah's tomb. Oh no. When the body touched Elijah's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. What a peculiar story to share. Why would that be? Bible. Because God wanted Mackenzie to know. He wanted Patricia and Jennifer to know that His promises to you stand even when your body is buried in the dust. And if it takes a resurrection from the dead for Him to accomplish what He promised Adam and Lindsay, then He will do it. He is faithful. When death surrounds you and the waves have swallowed you and maybe you are in the belly of a fish, His Word will come to pass. He put Himself willingly three days in a grave to stand up to show you it is never too late for him who believes. Nothing is impossible. I don't know about you, but I have killed myself many times in a spiritual sense. But it has never been too late for me because I trust in my God. Saints, what I'm asking for is for you to know the depths from which He's delivered you. For you to see your unique place in this body and the larger body as a whole. I'm asking for you to be aware of what God saved you from and why He saved you. Then when you face trials, to not think that He doesn't care and wants you to drown, but see it as an opportunity for God to overcome obstacles. I want you to recognize that this is the process by which Christians go through to become mature. That's what it's for. So that you can be complete. I want you to war against your desires so that they don't drag you away from the truth and kill you. And do you know what will happen? We will see a mighty resurrection in your life, in our lives, in the church, and one day around the world. Because God is about taking dry, dead bones 
and breathing life into them. That's what He does. That means nobody's hopeless. No situation is too far gone. Y'all stand up and let's pray.